York. This is Democracy Now! The fact is a traffic stop should not be a life and death situation. And the Tyree Nichols case shows us once again that police violence comes in many shapes and many forms. And it's not just a civil rights issue, it's a human rights issue. We're not going to stop fighting until the entire system of racist policing is ultimately undone. Mourners are gathering in Memphis, Tennessee today for the funeral of Tyree Nichols. He died after being brutally beaten by police following a traffic stop. We'll speak to Howard University professor James Hansford, as well as Andrea Ritchie, co-author of No More Police, A Case for Abolition. Then a standoff continues outside a hotel in midtown Manhattan, where asylum seekers are protesting plans by New York City to move them to a remote Brooklyn terminal. This is a very unfortunate situation, that they're mistreating us when we're here because we want a better future. We came here to work, to provide a better life for our families. More than 40,000 asylum seekers have arrived in New York City since last spring. They're pleading with the city to provide permanent and humane housing. All that and more, coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The funeral for Tyree Nichols is taking place in Memphis, Tennessee, today. Over 2,500 people are expected to pay tribute to the slain 29-year-old father who died last month after being severely beaten by five police officers. Tyree Nichols' family was joined by community and religious leaders, including Reverend Al Sharpton, Tuesday evening at the Mason Temple for a news conference. This is Tyree's brother, Jamal Dupree. My brother was the most peaceful person I've ever met in my life. Most. He's never lifted a finger to nobody. Never raised his voice to nobody. If my brother was here today and he had to say something, he would tell us to do this peacefully. The Mason Temple in Memphis is where Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his mountaintop speech on April 3, 1968, on the eve of his assassination. That's where the news conference took place. On Tuesday, Memphis authorities said they'll release more of the video and audio of Tyree's fatal beating after it completes its investigation sometime in the coming weeks. We'll have more on the police killing of Tyree Nichols after headlines. A warning to our audience. The story contains graphic images of police violence. In California, activists and family members of Anthony Lowe Jr., a 36-year-old black man who used a wheelchair and was fatally shot by Huntington Park Police last week, are demanding the officers involved in his death be brought to justice. Lowe's mother spoke at a news conference Monday outside the Huntington Park Police Department, where she said, quote, they murdered my son. Lowe had both of his legs amputated at the knee. His family says he was suffering from a mental health crisis when he was shot by police after officers responded to a reported stabbing in the area. Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens announced Tuesday the highly contested $90 million police training facility known as Cop City is moving forward despite growing opposition and the police killing of a forest defender last month. Activists have been camping out in Wilani Forest for months to prevent its destruction. 
Demonstrators at Atlanta City Hall yesterday chanted, Cop City will never be built, while members of the press were locked out of Mayor Dickens' news conference. This is community organizer Micah Herskin responding to the city's plans. How dare they stand in front of people and say, oh, this plan where we're tearing down trees is actually good for people and it's good for the economy and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's actually going to protect people. It's obviously false, and I hope that it's reported as such because... This is, it's such classic, blatant spin that, you know, they're taking us for fools if they think anyone would believe that tearing down trees and putting cement over it is protecting the environment. That's outrageous. To see all our coverage on Cop City, go to democracynow.org. A group of 20 Democratic Congress members is urging the Biden administration to temporarily suspend security aid to Peru over a, quote, pattern of repression against anti-government protesters that have taken to the streets since December after the impeachment and arrest of former President Pedro Castillo. The Democrats' letter comes as Peruvian forces killed their first protester in the capital, Lima, Saturday. 55-year-old Victor Santisteban's killing brings the nation nationwide death toll to 58 people. This is his sister. Today was not only one person who died, a whole family died. The heartfelt condolences from the president, from Congress, from the police will not bring my brother back. My 74-year-old father is dying because of the pain. Four key suspects in the assassination of Haitian President Jovenel Moise have been extradited to the United States to face prosecution. The Justice Department said Tuesday three Haitian Americans and a Colombian national face charges that include conspiracy to commit murder and providing material support and resources resulting in death. This comes 18 months after Moise was fatally shot at his home near the capital, Port-au-Prince, July 7, 2021. Dozens of suspects have been arrested. But the case has been at a standstill, as Haiti faces a political and humanitarian crisis. Haitian authorities say other suspects still remain at large. In Afghanistan, officials say at least 166 people have died since the start of the year, as the country faces a wave of freezing winter weather with widespread snowfall. Authorities said the recent deaths were caused by floods, fires and gas leaks from home heaters used by Afghan families to cope with the cold. Tens of thousands of livestock have also died due to extreme winter weather, as more than half of Afghanistan's population, including millions of children, are facing hunger and malnutrition due to a worsening humanitarian crisis that's been exacerbated by international economic sanctions on the Taliban government. Two grieving parents share the harrowing loss of their infant to the brutal cold. The weather was extremely cold and all the windows were frozen. It was Friday night. Because of the cold, we wrapped ourselves in all the blankets we had. It was 12 o'clock midnight when the child died from extreme cold. We had no choice but to wait until the morning, and then we buried him. When I saw that my son had died, I thought for a moment that my heart might stop beating. This comes as the United Nations and Taliban officials are negotiating exceptions to the ban on women aid workers, including guidelines that would allow some Afghan women to work in certain humanitarian operations. 
The U.S. is accusing Russia of violating the new Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, or New START, the only remaining nuclear arms control treaty between Russia and the United States. The State Department said Tuesday Moscow is refusing to allow inspections on its territory. Russia said it's complying with most terms of the treaty, but that it could not allow U.S. inspections at its strategic facilities, given the nations are on opposing sides of the ongoing Ukraine war. Anti-war activists have warned the threat of nuclear war is at its highest highest point in history due to the Russian invasion. Embattled New York Republican Congressman George Santos says he won't serve on the two House committees he was assigned to, pending investigations into the many lies and unanswered questions around his life and finances. Santos shared the news after a private meeting Monday with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. It comes as McCarthy is pushing to remove influential Democratic Congress member Ilhan Omar from the House Committee on Foreign Affairs. <coughs> <clears throat> Meanwhile, Santos's treasurer has resigned amidst intense scrutiny over his campaign funding, including the source of at least $625,000 that Santos had previously claimed were personal loans to his campaign. Last week, Mother Jones reported many people listed as top donors to Santos's campaigns don't appear to exist. Six western states that rely on the Colorado River for their water supply have agreed to drastically cut water use in response to the federal government's call for a concerted plan to conserve water amidst looming and possibly catastrophic critical shortages. A seventh state, California, remains at odds with the plan reached by Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico, Utah and Wyoming, suggesting major cities like Phoenix and Las Vegas should be cut off from the water supply in order to protect California's agriculture. Two decades of climate change fuel drought have brought reservoirs at Lake Powell and Lake Mead dangerously close to what's known as dead pool, when water level becomes so low it no longer flows through the dams. This is David Hayes, a Stanford professor, former climate advisor to President Biden. The crisis is incredibly uh, severe. Uh, in fact, the Interior Department is faced with the potential for not being able to make deliveries of water out of the Hoover Dam to the city of Las Vegas or to the state of California, period. Uh, the, the, the water levels behind the dams have become so low uh, that they may not be able to make deliveries. Uh, and, and that's the worst of all possible worlds. The Environmental Protection Agency announced federal protections for Alaska's Bristol Bay watershed under the Clean Water Act in a major victory for environmentalists and indigenous groups which have fought against the development of pebble mine for over two decades. The move will bar a proposed gold and copper mine that would have destroyed the world's largest sockeye salmon fishery. Alana Hurley, executive director of United Tribes of Bristol Bay, said, quote, the EPA has not only restored its commitment to science and law, but truly less to the original stewards and first peoples of this land, unquote. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is expected to greenlight a scaled-down oil and gas development project in northern Alaska led by ConocoPhillips, known as the Willow Project. Environmental indigenous groups have long warned it would disrupt fragile wildlife and contribute to the climate crisis. 
ExxonMobil announced a record-smashing $59 billion in profits last year, up by over 150 percent from the previous year. This comes after Chevron recently announced $35.5 billion in 2022 profits, also a new record. Climate groups say the massive earnings underscore the need for a windfall profits tax. The group Stop the Oil Profiteering said, quote, we're paying more for gas and electricity because big oil companies are gouging Americans and benefiting from a rig system that keeps prices high in times of war and crisis, they said. And climate activists with Greenpeace scaled a massive shell vessel in the Atlantic Ocean as it headed to the British North Sea, displaying a banner that read, Stop Drilling, Start Paying. Activists used ropes to climb onto the 51,000-ton platform, and the four that made it aboard said they have enough supplies to occupy the ship for days. Yeb Sanyo, executive director of Greenpeace Southeast Asia and former chief climate negotiator for the Philippines, was among the group of activists, though was not able to make it on board. Greenpeace's Victorine Chethoner, a Cameroonian-German activist who did successfully mount the ship, says the group took the drastic action to compel fossil fuel companies to stop drilling and pay for the loss and damage they've caused. In other climate news, a new report by the World Inequality Lab shows the difference in carbon emissions between rich and poor people within the same country is now greater than the difference in emissions between countries. The report backs windfall taxes and progressive taxation to help fund low-carbon initiatives. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. Coming up, mourners are gathering in Memphis, Tennessee, for the funeral of Tyree Nichols. He was brutally beaten by police following a traffic stop. We'll speak to Howard University professor Justin Hansford, as well as Andrea Ritchie, co-author of No More Police, A Case for Abolition. Back in a minute. Michael Kiwanuka. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. Well, today, mourners are gathering in Memphis, Tennessee, for the funeral of Tyree Nichols. He died January 10th, three days after being severely beaten by five police officers following a traffic stop right next to his home. 
The funeral will be held at Mississippi Boulevard Christian Church. Expected attendees include Vice President Kamala Harris and relatives of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, both killed by police. The funeral comes on the first day of Black History Month. On Tuesday night, the family of Tyree Nichols held a news conference at the Mason Temple in Memphis, where Martin Luther King Jr. gave his last speech. It was April 3, 1968, on the eve of his assassination. Speakers last night included the Reverend Al Sharpton, who also gave the eulogy at the funeral today. What happened to Tyree is a disgrace to this country. There's no other way to describe uh, what has happened in this situation. People from around the world watched a videotape of a man unarmed, unprovoked, being beat to death by officers of the law. Van Turner, president of the NAACP in Memphis, also spoke Tuesday night. But we want the action this time. We want action this time. We want them to pass the George Floyd Police Reform Act this time. They owe us that. They owe this family that. They owe all the other families who have been hurt, harmed, and brutalized as a result of interactions with law enforcement in this country. And then, when that happens, we got to call on the Tennessee General Assembly. And so what we have to do is stay focused on humanity, stay focused on the cause, stay focused on making sure that Tyree Nichols did not die in vain. Justice for Tyree! Justice for Tyree! Justice for Tyree! Van Turner, president of the NAACP in Memphis. We're joined now by two guests. Andrea Ritchie is a lawyer and organizer who's worked on policing and criminalization issues for over 30 years. She's the author of several books, including, most recently, No More Police, a case for abolition, co-authored with Mariam Kaba. She's joining us from Detroit. And in Washington, D.C., we're joined by Justin Hansford. He's a human rights lawyer, professor at Howard University School of Law, the founder and executive director of the Thurgood Marshall Civil Rights Center. Professor Hansford is also the first American nominated and elected to the United Nations Permanent Forum for People of African Descent. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Professor Hansford, let's begin with you. Today is the first day of Black History Month. Last night in Memphis, the family gathered in the historic Mason Temple, where Martin Luther King gave his last speech, April 3, 1968, a day before he was assassinated, as they called for accountability. Um, and today is the funeral. If you can respond to what's taking place right now and what you feel needs to happen as more and more information comes out, not just the people who brutally beat him, and we may not know everyone who did at this point, but also the people who stood by, whether they were EMTs or other police officers or sheriff's deputies. Yes. Well, first, thanks for having me, Amy. I want to start off by reminding everyone that this situation reminds us that these are structural problems that are going to call for structural interventions. Too often, we're forced to 
focus on people at sort of the end point of these broken processes. And I know some people looked at the fact that the initial five officers who were involved were all black, and they said to themselves, well, what does race have to do with it? But looking at all of the people involved, looking at the entire structure from the beginning to the end, uh, we need to understand that this is a broken structure and the structural racism that causes us to be in this place where we are today. So I'm not su- surprised that from George Floyd, uh, Mike Brown, um, now to Tyree Nichols, we're seeing the same structures, even, if, even though the players may be different, uh, the structures are the same and they haven't changed over this period of time. So we still have a lot of work to do ahead. And, and Professor Hansford, I wanted to ask you, uh, so many of these horrific incidents occur uh, 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 during traffic stops. Uh, and your response to those who say this case of Tyree Nichols is just a few bad apples. What is uh, what does the data show the research about how uh, traffic stops are implemented by police around the country in terms of uh, racial uh, groups? Yes, well, uh, critical race theory scholars like Devin Carbato at UCLA have shown again and again that basically the more times that there is contact between police officers and citizens, especially if their citizens are black, the more likely there is to be violence. And there's really no reason for police to be involved in traffic stops to begin with. Uh, there have been scholars uh, who have proposed that police be taken completely out of traffic stops. Uh, I know the city of Pittsburgh has experimented with that, um, and also um, Berkeley, California, has had calls for that. Even here in Washington, D.C., the D.C. Uh, Police Commission has recently recommended that. Uh, so that's a, a workable alternative. Again, it's not the solution, because these are, these are broken systems and structures that go all the way deep to the root of what American policing is in the United States. But that, this is one example of the type of needless interaction that we can find a way to eliminate um, if we're if we're working working really um, really strongly in trying to create change. And uh, you mentioned uh, the the need for structural change, but what what I've seen over the decades is that every time an incident occurs and there's massive protests, there are promises uh, by local leaders and even sometimes national leaders of making some attempts at uh, at, at uh, major or systemic reforms. But as soon as the protest movement dies down, uh, the politicians pull back on whatever is the promises that they've made. How do you overcome uh, this, uh, this constant uh, attempt to sort of co-opt the movement for a while and then immediately go back to business as usual? Right. Well, another critical race theory scholar uh, who I admire, Derek Bell, had this philosophy called interest convergence. And essentially, he argued that uh, racial reforms only happen when there is a convergence of the interests of the protesters and the people and the power structure um, on the issue of race, the white power structure. So, for example, you saw after the protests in 2014 and 2015, we called for change and they gave us body cameras. Why did they give us body cameras after all of the different things we called for were put to the side? Because body cameras were an intervention that ended up putting more money into police budgets. Also, training is another one of these uh, these uh, reformist reforms that actually don't change anything. So you do see things happen, but almost always these are changes that ultimately 
serve the interests of the existing power structure. There are moments in our history where there's an intersection um, of our interests and the power structure's interests. Um, that's how integration took place in the 1950s, 1960s. But finding a way to get, gain some reforms uh, in the context of the interest convergence reality is it's, it makes it really difficult to find that short, small window of opportunity. So we have to think deeply. That's why I think something like intervening in traffic stops, although not a solution, it perhaps could be one of these small windows of opportunity that we can take advantage of in this moment. I want to bring into the discussion Andrea Ritchie. We're talking to Professor Justin Hansford, not only a Howard University School of Law professor, but a graduate from Howard Law, as is Andrea Ritchie. So it's great to have two graduates of Howard Law School, the historically black college, having a debate and discussion, I should say, about this issue of um, police reform, police abolition. Tomorrow, uh, President Biden will be meeting with the Congressional Black caucus to talk about police reform. Andrea, you are co-author with Mariam Kaba of the book No More Police, A Case for Abolition. If you can first respond to uh, Tyree's death, uh, how he died, the number of officers, uh, law and uh, health authorities that were on the scene, from EMTs to a fire lieutenant, they've been fired, sheriff's deputies, other police, one of them, a white officer who was only recently named, though he was suspended at the same time the others uh, were fired, is the one who said, um, stomp his ass. He's the one who tased him at the beginning. Uh, we don't know the identity of the seventh police officer um, who was suspended. But respond to that and what you have been calling for for a very long time. Well, first, I just want to acknowledge and, uh, the incredibly egregious, brutal, and horrifying nature of this particular instance of police violence. And my heart goes out to Tyree's mother, his father, his siblings, and his entire community that's mourning and laying him to rest uh, in grief and rage today. And naming that that is a unique incident with devastating impacts on the individuals involved is really important. And it's also really important to note that this is, as you heard from Memphis organizers earlier this week on the show, an extension of everyday policing, not only in Memphis, but in Nashville, where a man was killed by police just a day or two ago. And as you mentioned at the top of the hour, across the country. And so, for me, I definitely uh, concur with Professor Hanford, Hansford's um, indication that police should be taken out of traffic stops. That's a demand that's been coming from organizers long before it came from the academy and is certainly coming from organizers in Memphis right now. And we need to go beyond that. We do need to recognize that it wasn't just about the individual officers on the scene or the their supervisors or the officers who were training them or the leadership in place in Memphis who, who came from another city where uh, they supervised a unit that engaged in very similar violence. It's really about, as uh, Professor Hansford pointed out, the entire structure of policing. And so, yes, what we call for in No More Police, a case for abolition, is a recognition that this is policing. This is not an aberration. This is not a, a, an exception to the rule. This is the rule of policing. And so it is essential that we think about uh, responses that will 
take not only power away from police to engage in this kind of behavior by taking them, for instance, out of traffic stops, but also the resources and the weaponry and the the legitimacy that enables them to continue to engage in this kind of behavior. So I do uh, look at legislation like the federal legislation referenced um, as legislation that we need to really be critical about because that legislation would pour millions more dollars into police departments like the Memphis Police Department that received $9.8 million in federal funds in 2020 in addition to the 40% of the city budget that it takes up to hire officers like the ones that killed Tyree Nichols. And so we really need to think carefully as we move forward, are we going to continue to pour more money, more power, more resources, and more legitimacy into departments that have proven, and policing that has proven over and over again that incidents like the murder of Tyree Nichols is the rule, not the exception. I think that's the question that we need to think about right now and whether the solutions that we're advancing are, as Professor Hansford was pointing out, going to simply um, continue to legitimize policing while allowing uh, instances like this to continue uh, with impunity and unabated, or are we going to take steps that will build a world where Tyree Nichols would still be with us today? Well, uh, Andrea, Richie, how would you envision the uh, a, a police abolition? Because clearly there are some who would say this is pie in the sky. It won't. It, it's unattainable as long as there are societies with huge class and racial divisions. Uh, what concretely would uh, uh, abolition look like? Well, I think that you're correct to point out, Juan, that it would require a complete restructuring of the society that we live in and that it would require us to shift our priorities from responding to every form of need, conflict and harm with uh, agents of violence and uh, more and more policing and criminalization and instead to address the root causes of the issues we face in our community, to ensure that everyone's needs are met, to ensure that we all have the skills and uh, commitment and ability to intervene in, prevent, de-escalate, and heal from harm, and that we have the resources we need to do that. And so it does require a radical reimagination of what we understand safety to be and the means that we devote to achieving it. And, you know, I think many things get named as pie in the sky and, and unattainable, but I think what's really unrealistic is to continue to invest in a system that has proven over and over again that it not only does not prevent or intervene in or heal from violence, but actually perpetuates and perpetrates more and more violence. So to me, that's the unrealistic position that we're going to somehow continue to try and tweak policing as incidents like Tyree Nichols' murder happen over and over again. I've been in this since Rodney King was beaten in 1991, and I have seen nothing change. In fact, just a greater recognition that it doesn't matter who the police officers are, it doesn't matter where they live, it doesn't matter what the policies are, it doesn't matter how much oversight there is, it doesn't matter how many prosecutions there are, we are going to continue to wake up as we did the morning we learned of Tyree Nichols' brutal murder um, to stories like this until we make those kinds of fundamental changes. And it can start with taking cops out of traffic stops or dismantling units like the ones uh, that killed Tyree Nichols, but we can't stop there. We have to actually reimagine a world where violence is not our response to every uh, situation. 
I mean, the term police abolition, abolition, Professor Hansford, of course, coming from the abolitionists who uh, wanted to get away from slavery, from the enslaving of uh, Africans in the United States. Um, can you talk about your response to that in terms of all that you've looked at from specifically—and it's fascinating you have this sort of particular focus looking at why do people who stop people for traffic stops, like I think of Walter Scott, I went to the um, auto zone in North Charleston, South Carolina, where he stopped for a, um, a broken brake light. And as he ran across the street, the police officer, Slager, shot him in the back. Uh, what this would look like, police abolition, and do you support something like this? Well, yes. Yeah, so when I think of police abolition, um, I think that it's the, it's the right word. I think about the abolitionists that we saw in the 19th century, Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, and uh, their work, which was um, our destiny as a, as a people to be free. And I think that's part of the same tradition. I think that it's the same work. I think that the systems that we're facing today are continuations of the systems that the abolitionists in the 19th century worked against. So, yes, I support that. I think that has to be the ultimate goal in terms of how quickly that happens and when that happens. Um, that is something that is likely to be incremental, uh, just like all big dreams. You don't, they don't happen overnight. But something like traffic stops, I do want to say that it's a, it's a conundrum in a way because oftentimes, as I said before, if you look at the past reforms like body cameras and other reforms that, uh, you know, training, those reforms ultimately ended up at having us in this place today where we have uh, over 1,100 killings in the past 12 months, um, black people more likely to be killed, twice as likely to be killed as white people. So actually killings have increased even with all this money given to police departments to do more trainings and to do more body cameras. So, again, this type of reform, um, we have to be concerned about power shifting to these other government officers to conduct surveillance, to use more technology during these traffic stops. If they're not police officers, that does not mean they'll have the power to search. That does not mean that they'll have weapons. That does not mean necessarily that they'll be using cameras to conduct surveillance. So we have to be very careful with how the actual implementation of a reform like this takes place, because the devil is in the details. And that's what we've seen over the past couple of years since the killing of George Floyd, really since the killing of Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown. There have been responses that have taken place, but almost always when we don't keep our eye on the actual implementation of those responses, we actually end up in a worse place because more money is put into these departments and we get worse outcomes under the heading of uh, goodwill and reform. And speaking of the devil in the details, uh, there's been a lot of attention focused at the federal level on on the legislation like the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act and and the even more uh, uh, progressive Breathe Act. Could you talk about your sense about these initiatives? Uh, and uh, they're still going to be very difficult to be able to get them through any Congress right now. But your, your sense of these attempts at some sort of uh, not structural, but um, substantial reform. Right. Well, my, my reading of the distinction between the Breathe Act and the Justice and Policing Act um, is similar to um, Professor Ritchie's uh, distinction between reforms that actually invest money in the system and reforms that divest money from the system. 
And my understanding is that the BREATHE Act, um, in addition to trying to divest money and put that money towards other solutions uh, to provide public safety, also provides a more of a healing reparations-focused lens on how to respond uh, to the system of violence that they call policing in the United States. The Justice and Policing Act is what is on the table. I know that Senator Cory Booker um, is likely to uh, reintroduce it this week. Uh, the Congressional Black Caucus and other advocates are likely to use that as their negotiating tool over the next uh, few weeks. With, with Republicans in control of the House of Representatives, it's hard to really be enthusiastic about the prospects. If you couldn't have it happen when Democrats were in control of both houses, how will it happen now? So, so there's really, I think there needs to be an honest discussion about what we can accomplish and perhaps a, a reform like this traffic reform or some other uh, reform that may be a small piece of these larger bills would be something that could be a possibility. Andrew Ritchie, I was wondering if you could go more into, as you know, Biden's about to meet with the Congressional um, uh, Black Caucus on Thursday to talk about police reform. On Monday, you tweeted, y'all do know that we police misconduct attorneys sometimes win motions to defeat qualified immunity, and those cops are still out there beating, sexually assaulting and killing people, right? If you can explain that, and also just simply further explain, since polls that have been done, uh, a recent study, strong public opposition to abolishing the police, even though a substantial majority of people are also concerned about police violence, uh, really lay out concretely what you mean. Well, I just want to name about that legislation is that I really believe there is no justice in policing. And many people, including Derricka Purnell, have written that the, the act that would be named after George Floyd would not have prevented his death. And it wouldn't have stopped the killing of Breonna Taylor either. That, and that what it would have done is poured, as we've discussed, millions more dollars into policing instead of into the things that communities need in order to build safety for themselves. So I think that's an important uh, thing to point out. I think also the focus on ending qualified immunity, I think is one of those sort of interest convergence moments that Professor Hansford was referring to. I just want to really emphasize people, qualified immunity only comes into play after someone has been harmed, after someone has been killed. And, it, you know, it's a defense in civil litigation that a cop can raise in defense of their actions to avoid uh, having to pay compensation to the family members. And it's a defense that we can sometimes overcome in litigation. And there are officers who have raised that defense, have not been able to assert it. Their, their motions to raise that defense have been defeated. And those cops um, still were able to remain on the force, remain continued in their employment, um, and are still out there doing the violence of policing that we've been talking about. So that's what I was getting at with this tweet, is that I'm not really interested in reforms that get only focus on what we do after police officers have beat a 29-year-old father to death. I want to focus on reforms that are going to stop that from happening in the first place. And I want to focus and I want to invite the Congressional Black Caucus and everyone else who's thinking about what to do in this moment to think about what's actually going to prevent actions like this from happening, not sort of what we do about them after the fact, which actually won't even stop the individual officers involved from continuing to engage in that behavior, much less address the system that enables 
enables and makes that behavior possible. So for me, it is about reducing the power and the legitimacy and resources that we put to policing and investing in the things that communities need to be safe. And so I think that's the piece, um, to Juan's point, about um, people questioning what abolition looks like, because what they're being told is simply that we're going to take away what is often the only government response to any harm, conflict, or need, whether that one produces more violence or whether it actually produces any greater safety. And, and people don't think that there will be anything put in its place. And the idea of abolition, as Ruth Wilson Gilmore frequently reminds us, is of actually a building, of creating, of resourcing, of pouring the nutrients that are being robbed of our communities by police, the, the money that cops are looting from our communities and putting it back into the things that increase safety, housing, health care, income, education, uh, public spaces, community, strong communities, skilled communities, communities that have the capacity to be there and with and for each other and prevent violence. And so I really think that when we ask people, sure, you know, without further explanation, do you think we should take away the one thing you've been taught is the only way to safety? Of course, people are going to have a reaction. But if we say, do you believe and investing in the things that actually have been proven scientifically through study to increase safety in communities. And we talk in No More Police about a study that showed that an increase of um, 10 community-based organizations uh, in a community will decrease violence in the community, you know, in a reciprocal relationship. So, if we point people to what we want to invest in and what kind of society we want to build what we and that those investments will actually increase safety, the vast majority of people actually support those kinds of proposals. It's a question of how the issues are framed and whether they're how they're framed, particularly by people who are invested in the current system. And uh, Andrew, I wanted to ask you a deeper look at this issue of the resistance of so much of the American public to uh, really dismantling or systematically changing uh, policing. Does it have to do more, I wonder, at times with the DNA of the country? Uh, after all, a country that has been built on guns, on uh, violence and repression of uh, the other uh, in, a, in a U.S. society. Uh, the, uh, the United States is really an outlier uh, in the, among the industrialized countries of the world when it comes to the prevalence of violence and and guns and and uh, and toleration of killing. Uh, uh, even after all of these school shootings, people don't, still don't want to have any kind of regulation or or serious regulation of guns in the country. I'm wondering, does that have anything to do with the inability of people to understand how police are functioning in our society? Well, of course. And on today, the first day of Black History Month, we'd be remiss if we didn't, you know, emphasize that this country is built on violence. And it's particularly built on the violence of genocide of indigenous peoples and enslavement of African peoples that was enforced, both of those things, by police and policing, as uh, was the exclusion of migrants um, and the policing of migrants. And so th those things are very much embedded in the very structures of American society and also um, in the culture of American society that is embedded police in our minds, as uh, Professor Patrick Blanchard points out, as the solution as opposed to a problem, even in the face of instances like the one that we're currently sitting with of the brutal murder of Tyree Nichols, um, on top of, as Professor Hansford was saying, the deadliest year in 2022 in terms of police violence in a decade, in spite of all
all the reform that has been advanced um, or proposed in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And so I think, uh, and Mike Brown and Trayvon and so on. And I think we really um, need to recognize that that we have to unlearn this notion that violence is the solution to violence, that policing is our only path to safety, and really recognize in, and look to what communities actually know to be true, which is that it is our relationships, it is our resources, and it is our commitment to each other's safety and well-being that is actually the pathway to safety. And we have to really unlearn uh, that in the face of a wave of propaganda. Every time there's an instance of police violence like this, the police have to react to the challenge to their legitimacy by reaching for their most reliable weapon, which is fear and fear mongering and, and really trying to reinforce in people's minds that the only solution to safety is police, when in fact police are a threat to our safety, as evidenced by this incident and thousands more. You mentioned Breonna Taylor um, and Tyree Nichols. You know, they are the same age, born on the same day. Um, they were 29—well, they—Brianna <clears throat> would have been 29 years old. Uh, Tamika Palmer, Brianna's mother, will be at the funeral today and pointed this out. Uh, Justin Hansford, before we go, I know that the world is watching the United States right now. Um, you're the first American nominated and elected to the United Nations Permanent Forum for People of African Descent. Can you talk about how your work has been inspired by the internationalist vision of Malcolm X and how it applies to what uh, is happening today in the United States? Yes. Well, for, for me personally, I, it's the continuation of that dream where uh, Malcolm X, upon his assassination, when he created the Organization of African-American Unity, wanted to take black people's case to the world court, which was the United Nations and argue that our issues, like police violence, are not civil rights issues, they're not just domestic political issues, but they are human issues, because they speak to our need for human dignity and respect for our lives as human beings, not just as citizens or citizenship rights. And in 2014, uh, when I was in Ferguson and I worked with the Mike Brown family to take uh, the Mike Brown case to the UN, um, I realized that it was a vision that we have to continue, because we need to make sure that not only is the world watching, but the, we want to make sure that the world is participating in this discussion, especially in the black diaspora. We have to support each other, and there is support for us all around the globe. And so this U.N. Permanent Forum is an Looks like we just lost Professor Hansford. Um, but uh, we will link to uh, the continued coverage of what happened, not only with Tyree um, right now, the funeral today, uh, but what unfolds in the future, and, of course, continue to cover it on Democracy Now! Professor Justin Hansford is Howard University School of Law professor, um, also, as I just said, human rights lawyer, um, as well as executive director of the Thurgood Marshall Civil Rights Center, and Andrea Ritchie, lawyer, organizer, and co-author with Mariam Kaba um, of the book, No More Police, A Case for Abolition. Next up, a standoff continues outside a hotel in midtown Manhattan, where asylum seekers are protesting plans by New York City to move them to a remote Brooklyn terminal. Stay with us. Thank you. 
Svalbard by Leland Witte. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. More than 40,000 asylum seekers have arrived in New York City since last spring, some sent here on buses against their will. We're going to look now at how many are pleading with New York officials to provide permanent and humane housing, as well as job permits, so they can make a living. The city says it's opened 77 emergency shelters and four humanitarian emergency response and relief centers, or HERCs. But this week, dozens of migrants have been sleeping on the sidewalk outside the Watson Hotel, not far from Times Square, right near Columbus Circle, where they were living for weeks until city officials suddenly evicted them over the weekend to move them to a remote terminal facility filled with a thousand cots head to toe. This is Labrador, a Venezuelan asylum seeker who was evicted from the Watson Hotel. As he spoke, he held up a picture on his phone of the new site. This is like a jail. What is that? Oh, yeah, they take a million dollars for immigrants' programs, but they do that for us? What is that? That's, that's no good. The new facility is at a cruise terminal in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Asylum seekers who agreed to tour it Tuesday with the Mayor's Office of Immigration Affairs said their tour confirmed it's too isolated, lacks privacy and sufficient heat, they said. On Monday, Democracy Now!'s Maria Teresena and Sanji Lopez were on the ground as police barricaded the hotel. Asylum seekers, some went on buses to be taken to the new site. Others refused. This is Jimena Bustamante mutual aid organizer, founder of the Undocumented Women's Fund. Many of them have already jobs in the area, and, you know, like, they have built community around here, and actually they cannot be forced because there is in New York a right to shelter. However, um, you know, there have been police called here to intimidate them, and they have stood their ground. They are camping outside. A group of asylum seekers shared an exclusive video recording with Democracy Now! of a Watson Hotel staff member telling them the city's not giving them other options and that the hotel had to be emptied out to carry out construction. The city is not giving you any more options. They want everything here to be emptied out because they have to demolish everything. They're bringing construction crews. Well, Ivan, an asylum seeker from Venezuela, told Democracy Now! he was assaulted Sunday night by a security guard working at the Watson Hotel. He said he's been in New York for about three months. He trekked for thousands of miles from Venezuela to the U.S.-Mexico border, crossing through the deadly Darien jungle along the Colombia-Panama border, where several other migrants lost their lives in the journey. This is Ivan outside the Watson Hotel Monday afternoon. I was filming the men who were being loaded onto the buses. Several of us were filming them when the security guard, a staff member from the Watson Hotel, assaulted me. He tried to take my cell phone. When I tried to move it away from him, he punched me back here. He punched me really hard. This is a very unfortunate situation, that they're mistreating us when we're here because we want a better future. We came here to work, to provide a better life for our families. 
Everything we've endured has really taken a toll. We don't have anywhere to sleep, but our faith is still strong. If we don't have anywhere to sleep and rest, then we can't work or do much. Some of my friends have been out here for two days. We haven't slept at all. They kicked us out of the hotel without a motive. We denounce the abuse from the guards at the hotel, their disrespect. We are human beings with families, just like all of you. New York officials are reportedly planning to use the hotel to house asylum-seeking families with children, they say. All this comes as New York City Mayor Eric Adams has rejected the idea that asylum seekers are protected by the city's right to shelter law. He spoke last week on WABC's Sidden Friends. The courts rule that this is a sanctuary, sanctuary city. We have a moral and legal, legal obligation to fulfill that. We don't believe asylum seekers fall into the whole right to shelter conversation. This is a crisis. For more, we're joined by Josh Goldfein, staff attorney for the Legal Aid Society's Homeless Rights Project. We welcome you to Democracy Now! So the mayor says, though there is a right to shelter, it does not extend to these asylum seekers. Can you respond to the whole crisis that's not only going on at the Watson Hotel, but happening all over, just playing out in front of everyone there? I mean, just to uh, clarify, I think the mayor was referring specifically to um, rules around who gets a bed when he, the city hall and the mayor himself, I think later clarified that, uh, they were not saying that the asylum seekers don't have a right to shelter. Um, they just, uh, are concerned that the city won't be able to comply with various requirements about, for instance, what time somebody has to get a bed or how long they can be kept waiting in the, in the, uh, an application office. Uh, they, they were not saying that they don't believe that asylum seekers somehow uh, are not people uh, entitled to shelter the way everyone else is. But I think what we're seeing here is the result of failure uh, of government uh, on every level. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, we'd have to start with, with climate change and immigration policy. Um, the federal government could make all of this go away uh, in a second by giving these folks work authorization. You heard that people uh, just want to work. They already are working. Many people are working off the books um, and being taken advantage of in that way. But if they were given work authorization, uh, they could have on the books jobs and they would um, you know, be able to leave these shelters because they'd have enough income to find a place to uh, live. Um, there's also uh, a failure by the state to contribute to um, assisting to relocate people to other parts of the state. Certainly, the federal government should be paying for the costs of this shelter as well. Um, but the city has access to various programs that it developed to move people into permanent housing. And what we're seeing right now is that the um, this administration and the prior administration, mayoral administrations, did not move people fast enough out of shelter and into permanent housing. And as a result, the shelters were already full when migrants started to come. So if we could invest in affordable housing, if we could invest in the programs that we have to keep people in their homes and also to move people out of shelter and into permanent housing, we would free up a lot of space in the shelter system that would allow the migrants to be sheltered there. And we wouldn't need to be putting people in cruise terminals or uh, in tents on Randall's Island or in cruise ships or summer camps or some of the other things that the city has talked about doing. Uh, uh, but Josh, the uh, 
the the sheer number of people that have uh, have come to New York uh, forty uh, more than forty thousand. That's the size of a small city. To what degree is the federal government responsible for being able to assist localities? Because obviously, it's not just New York. Uh, uh, Chicago, Philadelphia, many of the major northern cities are suddenly, as people are being bused from Texas and Florida here, have, uh, have encountered huge numbers like they haven't seen in quite a while in terms of people needing temporary shelter. What's the responsibility of the federal government in this? You're absolutely right. This is a nationwide problem. People are in every community in the United States. There may be more of them in New York than in some other places, but there are more People in in Florida, for instance, who have crossed the border, you know, most people crossing the border did not have in their heart that they wanted to be in New York City. Um, And 40,000 is a a relatively small percentage of the number of people who have crossed. The the federal government, again, could just solve this problem immediately by giving people work authorization. We have labor shortages in this country and we have a, a group of people who are here who are legally entitled to be here because they have a pending uh, asylum claim. And they need to be able to support themselves. So it would be a win-win if we were just to give people the opportunity to work legally on the books and not be exploited uh, rather than forcing them into the shadow economy. Because obviously, people are going to need income while they're here. They're going to find something to do to, to gain income. And, you know, uh, I also went to the Watson Hotel and a number of the people there are already working and they're really horrified that having to go to this um, remote terminal in Red Hook, they won't be able to easily get to their jobs. We're joined on the phone in this last minute by Desiree Joy Frias. I met her outside the Watson Hotel with many other community organizers with South Bronx Mutual Aid. In this minute, Desiree, if you can just tell us what is the latest after the city uh, took people who wanted to go to look at the facility, come back and report to others? Yeah, so a delegation of migrants uh, who have been leading all of this work um, went yesterday to Red Hook to see the conditions. Some of them had already been there and walked back to Watson because the conditions were so poor. Um, Videos have been circulating on WhatsApp. Um, Of the conditions inside, there's only four showers for over 500 people. There's not enough running water. The beds are are head to tail. And more importantly, there's a lot of issues right now with communicable diseases, COVID-19, chicken pox. Um, We've been dealing with these outbreaks at the 25 shelters we serve across New York City. Um, And I I understand the interest to want to house migrant families, but you can't create a second class of citizens just because they're asylum seekers, just because they're single men, and put them in a different kind of shelter, a detention camp, just because they're single men. So will they stay outside the Watson at this point where they are camped out over the last few days after being evicted from the hotel? Yeah, I'm here with uh, one of the migrants as well in the car, and, and, and he has told me that the call right now for migrants is to be allowed back into their rooms at the Watson, to be put into permanent housing, not just shelter to shelter. We keep shuffling people around like they're not real human beings with lives and needs and health. Um, they need everyone. All New Yorkers have a right to permanent, stable housing. And like the attorney said on the call earlier, they're not moving people fast enough from the shelters. Desiree Joy Frias, we want to thank you for being with us, community organizer with South Bronx Mutual Aid, helping folks um, outside the Watson Hotel, and Josh Goldfein, staff attorney for the Legal Aid Society. That does it for our show. Special thanks to Maria Teresena and Sanji Lopez. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.